Yeah, sorry, he's writing to the, the churches up here. Laodicea, Colossae is here. Hierapolis is not marked on the map because I forgot to mark it, but it's in the same area on the other side of the valley. Churches around here, um, Little Book of Philemon, you'll know. Um, Philemon was a member of the churches here, and uh, Onesimus ran away from here, and Paul converted him in Rome. Uh, so these, these are the churches, and these are churches that Paul uh, has not personally visited. Now, he knows people in those churches, but in his work so far as the missionary Paul, he's not been to those particular congregations. So that's kind of the background to him writing this letter to, to the Colossians. And the reason why I wanted to share some of this with you is prompted by the fact that I've been asked to speak at a conference in Tallinn in Estonia um, at the end of August, the August bank holiday. <clears throat> so it's a conference of teachers and teacher types from our congregations from Eastern Europe, uh, some from Western Europe, uh, the Middle East, and a few other places. And it'll be simultaneously uh, virtual and in person. So I've, in faith, I've bought a flight and booked into the hotel there where the conference is. We'll see if I can go. At the moment, it's okay to go. I really hope so. I'd love to just chat with people like Andy Fleming and Doug Jacoby and many others who will be there. Um, but they put me on the program once I knew I was coming. So uh, there are various classes on different, different aspects of biblical teaching, um, but there's a thread of Colossians as the sort of anchor foundation through the whole um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So somebody else is doing Colossians 1, I'm doing Colossians 2. I thought, well, I want to bring the benefit of my study in that to us. And also, I want to test out some of the material on you in a sense. So what I want to share tonight is not as technical as some of the things I would talk about in that class. But I want to find the practical applications and, and, and how that affects our own lives. And so what I'm bringing tonight is, um, is, uh, is some stuff I hope will be actually helpful. So that's, that's the background here. Of course, we don't have the time to go into Colossians chapter one as, as the setup. But all I will say is that what's going on, as I let's come out of the sharing, is that Paul is concerned about uh, this church that he's personally never visited, which he feels some responsibility for, being the apostle to the Gentiles. But he also knows that this is a it's a young church. These are relatively young Christians, and they're vulnerable to being distracted by some disputable matters, which we will get to in my next couple of sermons, because I'll be speaking on Colossians 2 the next two Sundays. So we'll get to some of that. Um, and at best, they're being distracted by, you could say, disputable matters. At worst, um, they're being distracted by false worship. He talks later on in the chapter about worshipping idols, uh, worshipping angels, rather, and that kind of thing. So in chapter 1, Paul has expressed his gratitude, how grateful he is for them. They're faithful. He prays for them with thankfulness. We always thank God, he says. Um, the gospel is bearing fruit in verse 6, growing throughout the whole world. And he mentions Epaphras, who was a, a fellow worker of Paul's, who actually seems to have founded the church there. And uh, they have a mutual friendship there with Epaphras. He's got a lot of vision for them. He's hoping that they will get more knowledge, more wisdom, more understanding, and more bear more fruit and being strengthened and being joyful. He's got a lot of vision for them. Uh, he emphasizes the supremacy of Christ. Most of us will remember, I expect, from our days of studying the church study. This is one of the classic church study scriptures, Colossians 1.18. 
talking about Christ being the head of the body, the church. So in that whole paragraph, he's talking about how Jesus is supreme. He's the power. He's the, he's the ultimate. And that comes later on in chapter two as well, re-emphasized. And then he's also talks at the end of the chapter, a passage we've often also used sometimes in a discipleship study or a discipling kind of uh, uh, lesson. I remember Lolu and I having a long conversation about this particular passage many years ago and how, how amazing Paul's heart is to help other people mature and grow. Now, at the end of chapter one of Colossians, he talks about how hard he's working and how much his the sufferings of Christ are happening to him, and that's helping him mature, but it's also helping him be equipped for the needs of the church, including the church in Colossae. And he proclaims Christ admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy so uh, Christ so powerfully works in me. So this is the background, chapter one, to what we're going to talk about here uh, in, in chapter two. And so let's get into this first part of chapter two. We're going to look at the first five verses. So let's read verses one to five. So Paul says, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So just those first five verses. So let's take a few thoughts from these. So firstly, the heart of Paul. What do we see here in the heart of Paul? He says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and those at Laodicea. He wants them to know it. He wants them to know I care about you. I care about you enough to work hard for you. Um, it could be perhaps that he's had some complaints. I mean, he's been to lots of other churches, Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, uh, maybe the guys at Laodicea and Colossae were like, when are you going to come and see us, Paul? You know, you go and help all these other people, but, you know, we need some help as well. Maybe there's been a few complaints, perhaps Epaphras has told him about. Maybe he's putting their minds at rest, as well as answering some criticism. Um, maybe. But he says, I'm working for you hard. I'm contending for you. How hard I'm contending for you. How hard. Not just I'm contending for you, but how hard I'm doing so. It seems important to Paul that his listeners know this. And in fact, we must take it um, that Paul is being sincere here and that he is contending hard for those people. So what does he mean? What does it mean to contend hard? So the word contending in the Greek is the same word you'd use about, well, a bit like the Olympics, actually. Uh, you've seen some of the stresses and strains on the bodies of the Olympians. Um, we've had people being injured during races and things like that and weightlifting. And, you know, it's, it's tragic to see all the effort that goes into get someone to the Olympics and then they have to pull out um, because of an injury. 
but it's that kind of idea. It's the athleticism. It's the metaphor of the uh, of the arena, the gladiatorial arena, or the Olympic athletics arena. He's talking about here. And what does his contending take the form of? And if we go back to chapter one, all we can say is, I think, three things. Firstly, in verse nine of chapter one, he says, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We've not stopped praying for you. So prayer is an important part of how he's contending for the uh, Colossians. Prayer is part of it. Um, he's also contending by being in touch, I think. In verse 7, he mentions Epaphras, um, that, who taught them the gospel. Uh, he's a faithful minister and told us of your love in the spirit. So he's in touch with Epaphras, who tells them, him about what's going on in Colossae. Um, there's a connection. He's, he's keeping in touch with people that can keep him informed. That takes some work, doesn't it, to do that? And also, I think his contending takes the form of writing this letter. Uh, it's uh, quite a lot of work to write, not just a dash off a card for somebody, but to write something that is specifically tailored to the spiritual needs of a group you've never met. That, that and, and when you study the book and you look at the theology and everything, I mean, it's an amazingly deep, powerful book. And yet this is something Paul wrote just for that congregation. Well, two congregations, Hierapolis, maybe three, as well as, Coloss as uh, Laodicea. But he never, he never thought we'd be reading it 2,000 years later. How much effort he put in for a young, small, probably quite a small group of Christians, writing letters, praying, staying in touch with people, working hard, um, so a question for us to consider is what would it look like for us in this congregation amongst us as brothers and as a congregation, what would it look, what would it look like to contend for one another hard? Uh, the word for uh, hard there is helios or helios. That's, that's so hard is what he's saying. I'm contending for you so hard. What would that look like? That's a question for us to consider. So that's the first part of, uh, of the uh, paragraph there. That's his heart. And then in verse two, very interesting what Paul does here, I think. He tells them why he's writing, what his goal is. My goal is that they, referring to the Colossians, be encouraged in heart, united in love, full riches of complete understanding, know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, a very typically Pauline long sentence here. So the goals he's got here, he's got a very specific goal. And it's not a, just an individual goal. He's not writing to an individual. He's writing to a, a, an ecclesia, a gathering, a, a congregation. He's hoping for the body as a whole to experience this, which is going to bear fruit in wonderful ways. We'll talk about on Sunday in verses 6 and 7, overflowing with thankfulness. That's where he's ultimately going. But for the congregation to get to be a, a, a group with our, that are characteristically overflowing with thankfulness, first, they need this, to be encouraged in heart, united in love, full riches of complete understanding, knowing the mystery, which is Christ. That's, that's what he wants. He wants the body to enjoy love, unity, encouragement, and to know Christ, to know Christ, not just to be a group, not just to know some things, but to know Christ as a body, to help each other with that. The word encouraged here, uh, encouraged in heart, also means strengthened, strengthened in heart, united in love. United in love and united in complete understanding. Um, it, it brings to mind the idea of no man left behind. We're going to make sure we all move forward together into greater maturity. Perhaps not all at the same level, but we're going to move together 
united in that uh, in that love and that understanding. Uh, the Greek word for encouraged here, encouraged in heart can mean strengthened, uh, paraklesin, and it means literally to call to one side. Uh, so it means comfort, encouragement, exhortation. And the, the united word here uh, has the idea of being compacted, welded together in genuine unity, welded together in love. You know, when something's welded together, it's not just joined, it's, it's almost inseparable. It's you're stuck together. It's that kind of unity that Paul has in mind here, that glued together, welded together. So they have complete understanding, which is a, a comfort and a challenge to have complete understanding of what he wants. Uh, because it's a comfort, because we can get it, but it's also a challenge because there's more to growing. And he talks about the mystery, knowing the mystery, which is Christ. The mystery in that context theologically doesn't mean something that's um, like a, an X-Files uh, mystery, not that kind of thing, but the mystery as in something that um, has been long hoped for, finally revealed. It's been revealed, and Jesus is that answer. Reminds me a bit of John 17, verse 3 where Paul prayed for his followers. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So that's what Jesus wanted. He wanted them, his followers, to know him and to know God through him. And Paul has the same idea here, the same desire to have that uh, experience of being in Christ. He talks a lot about being in Christ in the, in the chapter. So perhaps a question for us to discuss could be, what would it look like for us as a congregation to pursue these goals together for each other, for one another, as a congregation, to pursue the goal of being encouraged in heart and united in love, or encouraged and united in heart and love. It could mean that in the, uh, in the, in the Greek. And to know that mystery that is Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What would, what would it look like if we pursued that or those goals? And then finally, verses four and five, just to finish off, he says, I tell you this so that no one will deceive you. So he's very clear. He's very transparent about what he's trying to do here, very specific about his aims and the issues he's addressing in the rest of the letter. Uh, I don't want you to be deceived. It implies that perhaps they haven't yet been deceived, but they are perhaps in danger of being deceived. And let's face it, um, all of us from time to time are in danger of being hoodwinked spiritually, as well as in other areas of life. Um, Fine-sounding arguments, he says they're dangerous. Uh, uh, the, the right thinking is the antidote to giving in to these people with uh, the uh, salesman patter, trying to give them a different perspective on what Christianity is really all about. And he says, I'm absent, but I'm present. And it's kind of funny the way he puts it. Uh, I am absent, but I'm also present. He felt his connection with the disciples. And, you know, you and I, we all here have felt that sense of present but absent a lot over the last year as we've seen each other online much more than we've seen each other in the flesh. Present but absent, in a sense, you could say. Um, disciplined. I'm delighted to see how disciplined you are, how firm your faith in Christ is. The word disciplined there is the same word used for military formations. So what he's really saying by saying disciplined, I think, is he's saying Okay, you're, you're set and you're solid and you, you've got your guard up. Don't let it down. And he's going to go on and, and talk about that. It's, uh, it's a military term, uh, taxing, uh, in fact. 
So he's got some warnings for them. He's got some challenges for them. But I think what you, what I feel from this paragraph is that he really believes in them. He has a tremendous vision that they will grow, that they can grow, and they can do so uh, together. So I'm going to stop there with what I've got to share. It's probably enough. And ask us to think about that and then think about whatever's resonated for us uh, through these five verses. What would it look like to contend hard in the way that Jesus talked about for one another? What would it look like to pursue these goals, the same kinds of goals that Paul has for the Colossians, for ourselves and for, to help one another with that? Uh, uh, how can we work towards similar goals? here in Watford and amongst uh, the brothers, or anything else that struck you as we've um, looked through these five verses. So let me stop there and ask anybody who'd like to, to share a thought or ask a question uh, as you wish.